you have a Bible, uh, let me uh, invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. We're going to read a very familiar passage this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Uh, we won't uh, spend uh, time, uh, for the sake of time, on every uh, verse as much as some of the others or every phrase. We're a little selective this morning, but we'll read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Would you stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word? Matthew 1, 18 and following. Hear now, church, the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus." Amen. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to it. You may be seated. <clears throat> As we gather now uh, around God's word to hear it uh, preached, uh, shall we pray and ask for his special blessing now? Father, we thank you, oh how we thank you, that you are a speaking, self-revealing, self-disclosing God, that you have revealed your purposes and your plan, indeed your eternal decree to your people, the sending of your Son the birth of the Messiah, the coming of Christ the Lord in such a marvelous, miraculous way beyond all human imagining and yet glorious and wonderful. Help us, dear Father, we pray with all of our hearts to attend now to your word, to attend to you, and to hear your voice and open for us, we pray, the very bread of life, 
Jesus, our Lord, that we might feed on him unto the salvation of our souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we have seen the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us in our Lord's Day morning services, the emphasis in Luke's gospel, as far as the human element is concerned of the nativity story, is upon Mary. Here in Matthew, however, the emphasis is upon Joseph. I'd like to spend, uh, accordingly, just a few minutes with you this morning thinking about this man and his faith, his godly character, and in doing so, to see what kind of human parents our Lord Jesus grew up with, the kind of marriage and the kind of family into which our Savior, uh, touching his human nature, uh, was born and raised. Notice how matter-of-factly Matthew begins his birth narrative in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. It is very simple, very straightforward, unadorned language, but it is meant to convey something, and that is this, that what is being conveyed actually happened. That this is not myth, nor is it folklore or legend, but historical fact, though it does involve the miraculous and the supernatural. Bible-believing Christians have never believed that the miraculous is not historical or that the historical cannot also be miraculous. We believe with all of our hearts that the God who created the heavens and the earth can and does intervene in history, in miraculous ways, just as his word uh, so clearly attests. And we are told, just as we read in Luke's gospel, that after Joseph and Mary were betrothed, now betrothal in ancient Judaism was legal marriage, but not yet consummated marriage. At this point, the wife still lived under the roof of her parents' home. But sexual immorality, if it was discovered at this time, was considered adultery and was punishable under Jewish law. And so after they were betrothed, but before they came together, before the marriage was constituted and they were fully a marriage and a family, and with everything that that entails, she, Mary, was found to be with child. That is to say, she was pregnant. And that pregnancy, we are told, was the result of the overshadowing, as Luke tells us, of the Holy Spirit. Now at this point, you have an advantage you know the rest of the story. You know how it goes. You know how it ends. But Joseph at this point did not. And so it is critical that you understand that Joseph was somehow made aware of the fact of Mary's pregnancy. 
but not of the manner of Mary's pregnancy. And you and I can only speculate how he came to know that. Word has gotten out. We're not told exactly how he received the news. But news travels very fast, especially news like this. In a tiny Jewish village of perhaps a couple of hundred people at the most. Mary is pregnant, and it's before the wedding day. This was unacceptable in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish community, in any Jewish village, and according to Jewish law. Premarital sex was expressly forbidden. And people would have either assumed that Mary was pregnant by Joseph or by another man. But Joseph knew that he was not the father and therefore could only have assumed that Mary had committed adultery. The situation, as far as he knew at this point, was altogether wrong and sinful, personally painful. As he approaches his wedding day and all the joy and anticipation that that involves, he found out that his wife, for that is what she is called, as far as he was able to tell, had cheated on him and been unfaithful. Now, why did Mary not tell him the whole story? Why did she not find some way to come to Joseph to clear the situation up, to tell him what the angel had told her and the manner of her pregnancy? Well, for one thing, as soon as Mary had become pregnant, do you remember what she did? She made the long journey to the south, uh, to Judah, to see Elizabeth, her relative. So for a number of months, at least, she was not even there in Nazareth. But I want you to imagine her situation, and I want you to imagine a conversation. Um, Joseph, this is going to be difficult to hear, but you must know I'm pregnant. I know. I know. But there's something else you must know about this. I'm not pregnant by a man. I am still a virgin. I have kept myself pure. I have not known any man. The truth is this. I am pregnant by the Holy Spirit. How would Joseph have reacted? Could anyone believe such a story? Would it not have been the cause for scorn and ridicule? And so in the providence of God, Mary left the matter to God. She left it to God to take care of, for God to tend to the details, for God to inform Joseph 
in his own way if it was his will to do so. For God to tell Joseph in a way that Joseph could believe. And thus, if it was the will of God to spare her reputation and to keep the prospects for their marriage alive. But you must further understand that Joseph's willingness still to receive Mary as his wife meant for him the possibility that many would not ever believe this story. In fact, it is very likely that no one outside of the family, and certainly many within the family, never believed this story. And therefore, you have the very real possibility that for the rest of his life, people would believe things about him and say things about him that were not true. Either that he slept with his wife before their wedding day, or that some other man had defiled her, and that the child he raised was the son of another man. But you see his character now coming through in verse 19. He was just, it says. He was a righteous man. He was a man of righteous character and conviction. We should not quickly pass over that, beloved. It is what God has always expected and always demanded of his covenant people that they, like their covenant God, be righteous and obedient and observant of his law. But being a righteous and just man and knowing that sexual immorality was contrary to the law of God and punishable even by death under Jewish law, he resolved to put Mary away. That is to say, he resolved to divorce her. And we sometimes think that divorce is the worst of all sins. And surely it can be a very grievous sin. But here we learn that a righteous man is intending divorce. But of course, for a very righteous reason. A reason that was permitted under the law for the case of adultery, or we might add, perceived adultery. So Joseph was a just and righteous man, but we see another side of him here, his compassion. He was a righteous man, but that did not mean he also lacked compassion. Though he intended to divorce her, and though it must have been intensely painful for him to believe that she had slept with, with another man, he is not vindictive. He is not out to hurt her or to cause her to suffer unnecessarily. For what do we read but that he did not want to make a public example of her? He did not want to expose her, Mary, to public Shame. Though intent on doing what was right in agreement with the law, he did not want to go any further as he might have 
and prosecute her, we might say, to the fullest extent of the law. He had compassion on Mary. He felt pity for her. His righteousness demanded the divorce, but his compassion demanded that Mary suffer as little shame and disgrace as possible. Dear friends, such a person is rare. There are righteous people, but they are often not compassionate. And there are compassionate people who are often not very righteous. It is a rare jewel of a man, a rare combination indeed, to find someone who is both righteous and compassionate. The Bible, you know, speaks of grace and truth. Truth and grace. We sang it already this morning. On the one hand, insistence upon purity and holiness and righteousness and truth and God's standard. But also grace, love, mercy, charity, patience, forgiveness, long-suffering. And we know that our Lord Jesus fully embodied both. He came, as John says in John chapter 1, full of grace and truth. A rare combination indeed. And here is a man at the human level, full of grace and truth. And it tells you something, doesn't it? What kind of home Jesus was raised in by the purpose and plan of God. What kind of family life he must have had. What kind of instruction touching his humanity that he received. For he was given a godly father and mother on this earth. God sanctified the family by putting Jesus into a family, a family with a father and a mother, married to one another, committed to righteousness and truth, but also compassionate and merciful. For both Joseph and Mary, the Bible tells us, were faithful, humble, obedient servants of God. And it tells you that at every time in history, even at dark times like this one, there is a faithful remnant of God's people on the earth. God always has his own who love him and trust in him. And it tells you what a family and what a marriage and what a home life can be if we trust God and are shaped by his word and how important it was to the Father in heaven that Jesus live and be raised in such a home and by such people. Let me ask you briefly, how do you think Joseph became a righteous and compassionate man? Do you think it happened by accident? Do you think it happened in a vacuum? Do you think that he just turned out that way by chance? Let me remind you, dear friends, that these people were, as we often call them, the people of the book. They were the people of the Word of God. They knew the Scriptures. 
They love the scriptures. Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1 makes it very clear. She knew the word of God. That is how they were shaped into the people they became, by being steeped in scripture and in prayer. So let me commend to you in the new year, Bible reading, Bible study, adopt a plan of reading through your Bible in the new year. If you want to change, if you want to be shaped and made more like Christ, if you want to attain godly character that has often eluded you, it happens not by accident, but by loving God's word and meditating on it. There was someone in this church who read through the Bible for the first time ever this year. It has been life-changing, and I have seen the change. If you want to be more like Mary and Joseph, read his word every day. It will change you. Well, as you know, uh, the angel of the Lord visits Joseph, tells him of the whole situation, gives him the full story. And in the end, Joseph too, as Mary had been, was obedient to the word of God. He does just what the angel says. He takes Jesus to be his son. He names him, signifying legal adoption. But two remarkable things are said about Jesus here. One of them we talked about last night. We can quickly pass over. Verse 21 they should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will be the Savior from sin to rescue us from our sins and all that they deserve, as we discussed at length last night. But I want you to see verse 23. The fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus was not born, uh, if you will, in a vacuum. He did not come out of nowhere. The prophets had foretold the virgin birth. Isaiah had said, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. It is interesting because we know that Matthew wrote primarily with a Jewish audience in mind. It's a bit interesting that he would give the translation of a Hebrew word, but it is this, im is with, anu is us, and el, of course, is God. Literally, the order is with us, God. The with us is in the first place. It is primary. It is where the emphasis lies. Now we say God with us, and it is so. But with us, God, Emmanuel. It is a mysterious name. There's no indication in the Bible that anyone ever addressed Jesus directly by this name. But it is a very precious name. Jesus shall be God with us. It means that God in Christ is God incarnate among us. 
God at peace with us. God reconciled to us. Not at war with us. Not against us. But with us as our Savior and as our divine heavenly friend. God taking us into covenant and communion with himself. God's people, the Jews, had God with them in types and in shadows. He dwelt with them between the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, first in the tabernacle and then in the temple. But he never dwelt with them so much as when the word was made flesh, when he came to dwell among his people, when Jesus Christ himself became the temple of God. That was the blessed Shekinah glory. That was the presence of God in the midst of his people. Beloved, here is the wonder of the miracle of the incarnation. Jesus, who is God and man, reconciles God and man because the two natures are brought together in one person. He and he alone is fit to stand in between, to lay his hand upon them both and to bring them together. It is a deep mystery. It is the richest mystery of our faith because Jesus is the temple of God, because he is the dwelling place of God among men, because he is both God and man. He and he alone is able to bring God and man together in the fullest sense. He is God with us. Matthew Henry has a very beautiful comment about this, saying, by the light of nature, we see God as God above us. By the light of the law, we see him, we see him as God against us. But by the light of the gospel, we see him as Emmanuel, God with us, in our own nature, partaking of our own humanity, and doing so for our interest and for our sake. What a wonderful truth, O church. What a glorious promise that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. And you all know this as a theological fact, but what does it look like to live as if God in Christ is truly with us? What does this hope look like in the lives of God's people. I've shared with uh, a number of you, I think, uh, about a friend who we came to know in graduate school a number of years ago, uh, Greg Schuringa. Uh, he was a good friend in our graduate studies. He's now a pastor in a Christian Reformed church in the Chicago area. As we mentioned to some of you last Sunday night, uh, he had a brain tumor underwent brain surgery to remove the tumor a number of years ago. And we received this from the Schuringer's Christmas letter. Would you listen? His wife, Sarah, writes, Greg had to go through another brain surgery last week. 
And tomorrow we find out what the pathology shows. Five years ago, he had the same type of surgery, then two years of chemo. It was hard, but by God's grace, we made it through, and Greg has been doing amazingly well. The simple and comforting words of Lord's Day 10 of the Heidelberg Catechism keep coming to mind. And they shared those, and I want to share them with you. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. And then the follow-up question, 28, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will ever separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. And this faith, dear friends, this trust in the face of brain cancer for a relatively young man, a husband, father of four daughters, a pastor, a Christian. It is childlike faith. It is trust in the providence of our Heavenly Father that he is with us and that that makes all the difference. What have we to fear if God is with us? Even death we need not fear. That brings us closer to the consummation of that great eternal promise. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Hallelujah. Jesus did everything necessary to reconcile us to God when he died on the cross for our sins. And by his grace, he is with us forevermore. Let us pray. We thank you, dear Father, for the promise and gift of your Son. We thank you that in spite of our sins and failings, he is Emmanuel, God with us, God, never to leave us in our sickness and sorrow, in our joy and prevailing. We are never alone. Thank you that we will never be without your love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.